we're finishing up what we started last week, and uh, if you have your notes, you'll see that. If you don't have the sermon notes, they're in the foyer, if you want to grab one. And remember what we said a few weeks back when we began Romans 8. Everything that we see here in Romans 8 is meant to give us assurance. It is meant to assure us of our relationship to God, that Jesus Christ's work is totally sufficient. By the way, forgive my ADD. Last week, everybody was over here. Is this like a game? Now everybody's over here. Y'all playing tricks on me? Y'all sent out like a private email or something. Forgive me. My attention, I was like, why are they all over there now? Sorry. Assurance. The, the, whatever we read here, Paul is writing so that we would be assured. Listen, and one of, the, one of the ways that we feel that assurance, that we sense that assurance that we are God's and he is ours is through the defeat of sin. And again, the illustration of, of marriage, there's so many great illustrations there. There's so many, you, I could think of many illustrations. If you were, if, if you were at a business, let's say, and, and you were stealing from that business, when you're in, the, when you're in the, the offices with your coworkers and you know what you're doing, guess what you're going to feel when you're around those coworkers? You're not going to feel assured. You're not going to feel a peace. You're not going to feel a sense of togetherness, of a sense of bondness. In marriage, if, if there's a lack of fidelity, there's going to be a lack of peace. There's going to be a lack of assurance. Is the relationship there? Yeah, but, but there's no enjoyment of it. There's no sense of peace about it. And I think the same challenge is true with us believers. If we're not rightly dealing with our sin, if we're not walking according to the Spirit, living lives in pursuit of the Spirit, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be a lack of sense of peace, a lack of a sense of assurance. You know, even in 1 John, he says, I write these things to you children that you will know. I don't believe for one second God wants us walking around wondering. The, the difficulty becomes in, in what we see here in Romans 8. And we saw over the last, last week and the last couple of weeks that God has given the Spirit, you see on your handout, to defeat sin. We, our flesh is never going to defeat sin on its own. We need a helper to defeat sin. We need power to defeat sin, to put it away. And again, not to put it, to, to, to create a, dis, a, a hate for it. To, to literally put a distaste in our mouths of it. And the challenge is, we saw it in, in Galatians 3, that we get saved by the Spirit. The challenge is, but then our tendency is to go back and think we live according to the flesh. We get saved by the Spirit, we're sealed by the Spirit, we're empowered by the Spirit, and then we think that we'll just pick, hey, I got it from here, God. I'll go live according to my own strength and my own flesh. And Paul is writing here, again, there's so many parallels between Galatians, specifically Galatians 5 and what we see here. The only way you and I are going to defeat sin is if we walk by the Spirit. Bottom line. You're not going to do it in your flesh with any consistency. And we talked about the last, last week about the, the, the fact that even though we have the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and Ephesians 4, 30 says that we can, we can grieve the Spirit, we can quench the Spirit. Sin does that. 
We said through the hose illustration, all the power is there. The hose is on. The water is flowing as hard as it can to the end of that hose. And guess what? It, I was washing my car yesterday morning, and that happened. I went to go around the car, and the hose got kinked underneath the tire. And all of a sudden, there's no water. The water was there. I just wasn't receiving it. Sin does that. Please understand there are huge consequences of sin, even as a believer. And we looked at the last couple of weeks about, you know, most of us approach sin and the defeat of sin like trying to hold a huge beach ball underwater. It's our job. We just got to keep it under the water. Listen, you may do that for a little while, but guess what's going to happen to that beach ball? It's popping up. And again, it's not about our, it's not us trying to live this Christian life on our own strength. It's literally us yielding to God and God doing it through us. And again, the, the spirit was given for that purpose. And, and grasping Romans 8.1 is huge. You, you know, again, the judge has issued a verdict of not guilty. He didn't issue a verdict that said, listen, you go live for a year or two and we'll come back in two years and I'll keep an eye on you and we'll see how you're living and when you get to the end of your life, we'll see how you lived and then we'll make a verdict. Listen, God's rendered the verdict. Through Christ, he rendered the verdict. Not guilty. Through faith in Christ, as a total, sufficient... Again, Hebrews 7 through 10, the writer of Hebrews can't say it enough. Jesus' offering was sufficient. There's a new covenant. Guided by the Spirit. I'll put my Spirit in you and I'll live through you. But we have a responsibility in that. Again, Ephesians 1.13, we've been sealed with the Spirit. We have the Spirit. Are we appropriating the Spirit's power? Again, it's, it's, not, it's not that we need more of the Spirit. We don't need a second baptism of the Spirit, all these other theologies out there. We need to appropriate the Spirit that was given to us. When you became a believer, God gave you the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit was a pledge. It proves, again, we'll see it today, this possession of the Spirit is proof that you belong to God. If you do not possess the Spirit, you're not a child of God. I mean, I think about where we're headed here and just the idea of adoption. I'm grateful so many of us in this, in this congregation have, have adopted. Guess what you do when you adopt a child? Guess what you give them? You give them your name, right? When you give them your name, you know what that does? It seals them. They're yours. And, and I love going to these uh, going to the courthouse when I see these things take place because I, I specifically remember the judge will say many times, because many times these children who are being adopted are very, very young and cute and all that. And the judge will say, now you do realize this child is not always going to be this cute. You do realize there are going to be days where they're not as beautiful as today. Meaning that child is going to sin. That child is going to disobey. You know what that judge says? Even in those days, you know whose child that is? It's yours. Right? Listen, the issue is not whether or not they're a child. The issue is, are they enjoying the fact that they're a child? Are they appropriating the fact that they're a child? And what do you do? You go back to that date. That child is yours. It's not a question. That's Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can Paul write that? 
Because Jesus took the condemnation. Again, Clay mentioned it. I don't, not to bring up big words, but we ought to know these words. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, the point of Romans 3, 21 through 25, the, the highlight there is in 25 about propitiation. Jesus satisfactorily paid for our sins. God didn't just sweep it under the rug. He didn't just act like they didn't happen. That would be expiation. That would be like, let's just act like that never happened. That expiation doesn't involve a payment. And that'd be great. But the problem is, God is righteous. He's holy. And in order for him to forgive sin, there had to be a payment of sin. There had to be the penalty for sin had to be paid. And, and again, that's what we see right here in, in Romans 8.2. Immediately, Paul goes into that. Everything that Paul writes it's built on Romans 8.1. There is now no con. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Why? Because of the gospel. Because of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's offering. And look what Paul says. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's the same phrase. Go back up to Romans 7.4. Wretched man that I am. This is where Paul was battling this indwelling sin. And I do what I don't want to do. And I don't do what I want to do. And, and, and he goes through all this. And Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this, from the law of Who will set me free from the body of death? Who is his answer? Jesus will do that. The gospel will do that. When we, when we fail... Go back to the gospel. When you fall short, go back to the gospel. Your righteousness is in Christ. He says, it goes on, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering. See there, an offering for sin. Sin had to be paid for. There was a penalty demanded Again, where you sin, what was the wages of sin? We saw it in Romans 6.23. For the wage of sin is what? Death. And I love the way Paul said, don't miss this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? You know, if you think about that, Paul's very, just under the inspiration of the Spirit, you would almost think he would say the wages of sin is death, but the wages of eternal life is the, uh, the wages of, a, of God is eternal life. But that's not what he says. The free gift of God is eternal life. You know why? You earn death through your sin. You don't earn eternal life. And, and subtly, Paul says that. You earn death through your sin. You deserve it. That's your wage. But God doesn't pay wages. God gives grace. And the only thing you get from God as a believer, listen to me, the only thing you get from God is mercy and grace. Why? Because God poured out all his condemnation towards your sin on Christ. It would make no sense for him to condemn Christ and then to condemn you. Right? As a believer, you get mercy and grace. Does God discipline you for your sin? Absolutely, that's grace. And Jesus was the offering for sin. Again, God's not, 
again, what the law couldn't do, if you go to Deuteronomy 6.25, he says, it will be righteousness for you if you obey this law. This is what, again, God is righteous. Only righteous people get into, get into his presence, into, into eternity. Hey, you, you obey this perfectly, get it. The flesh doesn't allow that. That's what Paul talked about in Romans 7. That's not the law's problem. The law is good. The law is holy. That's my flesh problem. I can't obey it. I fall short. Therefore, what's the verdict? I'm not righteous. So God did what you and I couldn't do. And we see it in Romans 3, 26. God did it in a way that he would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That word just, is the, it's the same root word as righteous. The, 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 the greatest problem, if you will, the dilemma of the gospel is how does a holy God forgive unholy people and maintain his holiness? How does a righteous God make unrighteous people righteous? That's the dilemma of the gospel. And God, Paul says, reminds us again, God did this. He made a way for you and I to be declared righteous. Again, imputed righteous. God can give us Christ's righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the what of God? Righteousness of God. And, and what Paul is saying here is, believer, understand your position. You're righteous. Positionally, you're righteous. Now, we sin, we battle with sin. Practically, we're not always righteous. But go back to your position before God through Christ. You're righteous. And, and again, the, he has set you free. As a believer, God has set you free from the penalty of death. Meaning eternal separation from God. You're free from that. No condemnation. And, and the challenge is, you see it on a handout, what Paul is dealing with here ultimately is, is de the defeat of sin. Again, continually the defeat of that indwelling sin that remains. And you see it on a handout, the measure of victory that we get over sin in our lives is directly connected to the work of God's Spirit in us. Do, do we grasp what Paul is saying here? He's going he's gonna to build on this and, and down, all the way down into 12 and 13, even in Galatians 5. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The, the Spirit of God is God's provision for leading us into grace and not sin. And, and what we see here over and over in this passage, he'll go on and he'll talk about the law, the, not the capital law when it's a capital L, but the lowercase. And what he's dealing with is, listen... Power. God has given you the power to defeat sin. Go to Romans 7, 22 to see this, and 23. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. We, you and I, believer, have, there remains in you indwelling sin, and you must fight it, and you must wage war on it. And God has given you the power of the Spirit to do that. 
And, and again, the ability, the power even to obey, you sit in your handout, the reality of the weakness of the law to our flesh, God has provided strength in the, in the presence of that weakness, in the presence of that inability to obey, in the inability of my flesh to defeat my flesh, God has given you the strength to do that, and it's the Spirit. And if you're a believer this morning, you have power available and working inside of you to defeat sin. That same, again, it's the proof that you're his son. It's the proof that you're his daughter. And again, go kill your sin. Go defeat it. Go live in light of the righteousness that God has imputed to you. Go live in light of the title that God has graced you with, sons, daughters, co-heirs with Christ. Again, verse 4, so that the requirement of the law would be filled in us. Here it is, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That word walk there, it's talking about a way of life. He's talking about orient your entire life around the fact that you are a child of God. You have power in you, believer, to kill sin. The resources that you need to defeat the flesh, to kill sin, have been given to you. It, Peter says it in, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, seeing that his, or maybe 2 Peter 1, 3, seeing that his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And, and you see it on your handout, through the gift of the Spirit, you can be freed from the power of sin. You can defeat sin. But all of this is tied to the fact that you're not condemned. And, and better than that, and we'll get to it eventually in verse 14, for all who are being, listened led by the Spirit of God, they're sons of God. There's adoption coming. The fact that you're an heir I mean, think about this. It's one thing for the judge to declare you not guilty, but it's another thing for the judge to take you home as his son and daughter. Think about that. If you're in a courtroom and you were on trial for something and the judge says, you're, you know, I declare you not guilty. By the way, come home and live with me. Think about that. There's so much more than just saying, you're, I'm going to take you as my son. Not only are you innocent of all charges, I'm going to take you home to live with me. And I'm going to provide for you. Our position in Christ, believer, is secure. It's assured. The reality of this new realm in which we dwell. And, and part of that new realm, God is demanding that you wage war on your sin. And he has put provision in you in the spirit to do that. Jesus Christ was put forth as our sin offering. We don't have to perform for God anymore. We don't have to pretend. It's settled. It's a done deal. Now, what does he say? Go fight your sin. That remaining indwelling sin, go fight it. That old nature, go fight it. Look at Romans 5 through 8. And, and this is huge. The reality of this fight, I, I would propose to you that that Hating your sin, waging war on your sin, is, an ev is the evidence of being a believer. Hating your sin, waging war on your sin. L look what he says. 
For those who are, accor- who though, for those who are according to the flesh, verse 5, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, Paul is still building on the fact that you, believer, if you are a believer, if you have been given the Spirit, you are a child of God. You are in Christ. And what Paul is saying is set your mind on that reality. Live in light of that reality. It's what we saw in Romans 5. It's what we saw in 6. You have been transferred out of the realm of Adam, which death. Death rules. Death reigns in that, law, that realm of Adam. Sin. You have been transferred into the realm of Christ. What rules that realm? Eternal life. Righteousness. He's saying set your mind on that. In a, in a sense, and, and again, all illustrations fall short, but it would be, you know, as if you got transferred from Tampa to, to Guatemala or some foreign country, and, and you still tried to live there like you lived in Tampa. It doesn't work. You live in a new realm, believer. That new realm is ruled by righteousness. And God has given you the Spirit to cause you, to empower you, to be able to walk in that. And, and, and what Paul says there, you see it on your handout, is how we live is a key indicator of who we belong to. How we live can be a key indicator of who we belong to. To be according to the flesh here, what he means is to live under the domination of the flesh. To obey its dictates. Again, the idea of power is here. It, it, is, it is to live a self-centered versus not a God-centered life. Again, he he talks about in verse 8, these people are in the flesh. They live in the sphere of the flesh. And listen, the Bible draws a clear line. Jesus says it, the rest of the Bible says it. Either you are a God lover because he has saved you from your sins, or you are a God hater and do not want to submit to his rule, rule over your life. There's no in between. He says you're either for me or you're against me. And we, we've somehow tried to come up with this middle, well, I'm kind, listen, there's no kind of. Listen, think about this. You're either my child or you're not my child. You're not kind of my child. Now, we got a bunch of neighborhood kids that want to act like they're my child and come in my, but they ain't my child. Listen, you're either my wife or you're not my wife. There's only one who fills that, pro- just so you know. You're not kind to my wife. Again, but somehow we've created this, well, there, there. No, no, no. You're either a child of God or you're not. You either possess the Spirit or you don't. And, and, and listen, what Paul says, how we live, what we dwell on, how we orient our lives, what we live for, is a clue as to who our Lord is, God or self. It is a clue to the realm that you exist in. And again, life and peace come with the realm that is ruled by Christ. This is Philippians 4 stuff. Think on these things and what happens. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. 
Dwell on these things. Dwell on who you are, believer. I mean, does, do, I have a sign in front of my desk. I've told you it says, did you enjoy being a child of God today? Are you mindful every moment of every day that whose you are? Are you mindful every moment of every day of what you've been saved for? The purpose? Dwell on that. Set your mind on it. And, and Paul is contrasting here Two groups, and really, listen, there are only two groups of people that exist, believer and non-believer. Every single person is in one or the other. And how we live, how we think, can expose whose we really are. And there's a radically different nature that Paul is painting here of a believer and a non-believer, and he gives you the outcome of each. Non-believer gets death. Believer, eternal life. There's no in-between. You exist in one of two spheres, Christ or not Christ. And the Spirit of God empowers those who are Christ's. And listen, you see it in a handout. Because of the Spirit, we have the ability to put away sin in a way that we could not before as non-believers. Listen, I'm not at all saying we'll ever be perfect. But we do have the power to defeat sin. And God's Spirit, again, we'll look at it in a minute. If you want to really do a study on the Holy Spirit, what, what in seminaries we would call pneumatology, go to John 14, John 15, John 16. Three of the greatest chapters so you can develop a theology of the Spirit. One of the Spirit's roles is not only to comfort not only guide, not only direct in truth, but it's to convict of sin. It's to help us to put away sin. And, and look what he says in 7 and 8. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Listen, not only are people, not only are non-believers at odds with God salvifically, the, the, the challenge is, no matter what they do, they're at odds. But, but believers as well, listen, you and I, believer, can be at odds with God from a fellowship standpoint. And, and again, that's what First John, he says, I write these things to you. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us for all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the verse that our, our kids are memorizing this week in in children's church, but before that he says, if we walk in the light as you are in the light, this happens. If we don't, we deceive ourselves and we make God out to be a liar. There's no fellowship. No, no different than if, if one spouse or the other spouse is living in infidelity. It kills the fellowship. It kills the enjoyment. It kills the intimacy. How we live matters, believer. And we can't make ourselves number one and expect to have fellowship with God. We can't dwell on everything but God and expect to experience the power and the defeat of sin. We can't listen to crazy music, read crazy books, watch crazy movies, and then expect to come to God and put away sin. When all the stuff we read, all the stuff we listened to, all the stuff we watched, you know what it told you? Enjoy sin. And, and when we do that, you quench the, you're quenching the power. All the power's there. You're kinking the hose.
And, and, and that's what I want us to see today, partly more than anything else. You see it on a handout. We've got to see sin this way, that the most devastating effect of sin is not on you or me, but on sin driving out the power of the Spirit and fellowship with the Father. Do, do, we mainly think about sin as far as consequences uh, horizontally. The main consequence of our sin, believer, is vertically. It's vertical. And, and sin always results in some sort of death. It could be physical death. It could be spiritual death. It could be relational fellowship death. But it always results in that. And, and again, Paul says, by the very nature, look what he's saying about believers when he says a non-believer cannot defeat sin. Why? Because they don't have the Spirit. What is he saying about believers conversely? You can defeat sin because you do have the Spirit, and I would say you should defeat sin because you have the Spirit. Not saying that believers are as bad as they could be, I'm not saying they're all just as on a 10 out of 10 on the bad scale as we like to see it. But think about this. Think about a rebel who does nice things. They're still a rebel. Right? They're still a rebel. A non-believer who does nice things, listen, they're still at enmity with God. They're still hostile to God. And Paul is teaching us here how to see non-believers in their sin. Again, if we're honest, we oftentimes expect non-believers to do the very thing that they can't do. And oftentimes the very thing that you and I aren't even doing, stop sinning. We expect them to do what, the, what they are incapable of doing. All the while, look at our lives in this room. That's the bigger question. Are we doing what we have been empowered to do? Not are they doing what they're incapable of not doing. And, and in this room, we've got to, again, there's no neutrality. Stop making excuses for sin. But we've also got to stop expecting non-believers to do what they can't. They don't possess the Spirit. And the question, the question is not what are they doing. The question is this. Can you honestly say this? That I am walking according to the Spirit. And the Bible says this many, many different ways. Colossians 3.16 says it this way. Can you honestly say this? Does the Word of God richly dwell within you? Ephesians 5.18 says it this way. Can you honestly say that the Spirit of God controls you? See, because here's the deal. We've said it, but here's the deal. Whatever fills you, controls you. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's saying in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled, he says, with the Spirit. You have the Spirit. He's saying yield to it, be controlled with it. Here, and again, I've said this before, but again, you fill yourself up with alcohol. Guess what begins to control you? Alcohol. Fill yourself up with the Word of God. Guess what begins to control you? Word of God. That's Paul's, that's Paul's illustration. 
And immediately he goes into singing and how it affects your singing and how it, affects your, how it changes your, pre, your speaking and all these things. Evidence. Our lives are evidence. And, and again, we love to focus on others and, and, and take the attention off of us. But here's my question for us today. Do you hate your sin? And do you hate your sin not because of the embarrassment that it might bring you if you were exposed, not the earthly consequences. Do you hate your sin, believer, because of what it does to your fellowship with God? Do you hate your sin because of what it does in hindering others maybe even coming to God? That's the effect of sin. The Spirit has been given to me to set me apart, to mark me off as belonging to God. But he's also been given to me to hate sin, to hate unrighteousness. Why? Because in Christ we've been declared righteous. And sin is the opposite of righteous. You, do, you, please, please, I'm trying to help us see that's why sin is so contrary to who you are in Christ. You've been set free from that. That domain does not wield authority and power over you unless you let it. You don't have to sin, believer. You've been given the ability, the power by the grace of God not to. And, and Paul starts with this in 9 to show the, the contrast that a believer's life ought to hold. Look what he says in 9. However, talking about you believers, you, you are not in the flesh. Non-believers, not, they are in the flesh. They cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you... Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of what? Righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his, through his spirit who dwells in you. And you see it on your handout. What Paul says here is that the possession of the spirit and the consequent, consequent fighting and hating of our sin is again evidence that we are in Christ and that we grasp that we are in Christ. Again, Paul assumes they have the Spirit. You're different. The word if there, it can also mean since. And again, the word however, it marks a shift, a new, new realm. A, a, you're different, believer. You're different. You're owned by another. You belong to the, uh, another. You live in a new age. You live in a new realm. And that's why Paul could say that a believer won't be willy-nilly about their sin because the Spirit has been given to us. Will we win every battle? We will not. When you lose the battle, go back to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you win the battle, praise God. Again, why? So that the requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Christ did what we could not do because of the weakness of our flesh. He was perfect. And he is imputed with us, he has imputed us with perfect righteousness. His righteousness. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Therefore, God can forgive us. God can dwell with us. 
And the challenge is this. We kill sin or it will kill you. You cannot play around with sin. It's not inconsequential, even for a believer. Huge consequences. And, and again, fight sin. Hate your sin. All throughout the scriptures, I, th- I thought of Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Therefore, talking to believers, put on the new self. He's saying, live in light of who you are. Therefore, consider, there's a mindset. Same thing Paul says here about mindset. That consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is better of these things that the for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now, do you see the new realm? But now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. He goes on in verse 10, and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of one who created him. A renewal. You see what God is doing in us? We'll see it later in chapter 8 in verse 30 when he's talks under verse 29 that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. We are being remade. And what is he saying? In light of who you are, believer, hate your sin. Because it is in contrast with your new nature. It is in contrast with the new realm in which you live. Stop pretending, stop performing. Deal with our sin. Again, through the power of the Spirit, you have been equipped to defeat sin. And the end end of it is life. Not only eternal life, but life here and now. Even in John 10, I write these things that you would have life and have it in abundance. Even now, there's life. If the Spirit, again, is richly dwelling in us. And again, though we're bound, he says, we are bound to this body, and it is decaying. And yet in us, we are being, the inner man through the Spirit, Paul says, is being renewed day by day by day. And what Paul is saying again, the law was incapable of not only making us righteous because of the weakness of our flesh, but it's incapable of defeating sin, and the Spirit defeats sin. Puts it away. The law is incapable of making me truly love God. The Spirit will do that. Changes my heart. Gives me a new heart. And sin sin does not, what is he saying? Sin does not have the power to dictate terms, believer. Sin does not dictate the terms over your life. The Spirit. And, And all of this is written that we would feel secure. You see it in your handout. We are, if you were to sum it up, three things. We are secure in Christ, and the result is that we are free to go live without fear of condemnation. We're secure in Christ. We are free from the fear of condemnation. Yet, we have been given the Spirit so that we can truly defeat sin in our lives. See, see the richness of the gospel. God not only has dealt with, with sin and the guilt of sin, God has dealt with the rebelliousness of our own hearts. 
God has not only dealt with our status before him, he's made a provision for us to walk in him as his children. That, that's amazing. Christ took our guilt as his own and he died. And listen, the spirit changes our rebellious hearts so that we love, we love obeying him. We love serving him. And Paul's point is this, look to Christ. Focus on Christ. That's what he says in Romans 7. You have died to the law in order to what? Join yourselves to another. Look to Christ. Make much of Christ. Look at 12 through 15. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. There you see it. That's very clear. You don't have to live to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, listen, you die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you live. By the Spirit you put it to death. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You sit on your handout. There, there's a lot of truth here. By faith we must appropriate what God has given us in the Spirit every day to defeat sin. Listen, nowhere on these pages do you ever see let go and let God. That's garbage. Stop it. If you say that regularly, stop it. Appropriate what God has done. Listen, God, we don't get saved by grace and then, and then live by unaided legalistic flesh. This is a command. Walk by the Spirit. Let your adoption as sons and daughters overwhelm you and fuel this. Just like Clay led us to sing about this morning. Let the fact that you have been adopted permeate your life and guide your life. And let the Spirit empower you to crucify the flesh. That's the mindset. That's what we have to set our minds on. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Set your mind on that. You exist in an entirely new realm, believer. And God has made a provision. And, and I want to close with this. As I was studying this week, it... I thought about this, and, and, and if you go back to just how the beauty, I hope you see the beauty of the Bible here and how God's sovereignty and how does God, God does exactly what he promises. In, in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, look, I'm leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when, it, when it's finished, I'll come back for you. And the disciples panic. Where are you going? How do we get there? And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he, and he begins to comfort them about his departure. And in, and in verse 16, the, the high water mark of Jesus comforting his disciples in his departure, look at what he says to them. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and you will be with me. Listen, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. In the, in the, in, in the absence of Jesus walking with his disciples, what does Jesus promise that he will give them in his absence, the Spirit. 
the Spirit. And it's interesting here. In the Greek, he says, I will give you another helper. Even in our own language. The word another can mean two different things. And, and I think about uh, the other day we were walking off the golf course with Bradley and I was working on this in my own head. And, and we walk off Bradley uh, and uh, there was a white Lamborghini sitting there. And I was like, wow, I took a picture of it. Like, that's a nice car. Convertible Lamborghini. And uh, I started thinking about this. Suppose, suppose that man let me, a man or woman, let me borrow his Lamborghini and I wrecked it. All right? And suppose I went up to him and said, don't worry, I'll give you another car. I'll get you another car. Okay? Another can mean two different things. Right? I could give him my Hyundai Sonata. Right? Did I do what I said? I gave him another car. Right? Hey, I gave you another car. It ain't near the one you, I wrecked. Or, I could give him the exact same car I wrecked, right? Another can mean another of a different kind, but another also can mean another of the same kind. Those are two different words in the Greek. Guess which one Jesus uses? Same kind. Right? Jesus is saying, don't you worry, you're not going to be left as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and it's going, to be, it's going to be just like I was with you. Just like I was with you. And I think that's the why, if you look at Romans, Romans 8, you see all throughout this chapter, you know, this is a great chapter on the defense of the Trinity. In 8.2, it's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In 8.9, it's the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. In 8.10, it's Christ in you. In 8.11, it's the Spirit of Him who raised, God from the, raised Jesus from the dead. Look, John, Paul can say all three of those things interchangeably because they're the same in essence. Same power. It's interesting, in John 14, 12, before he says that, he says that you disciples, you're going to do greater things when I leave than here, now when I'm with you. Imagine that. Why? The Spirit. Instead of, instead of Jesus being located in one place at one time, listen to what he's going to do, and listen to what God's doing. See the amazement of this. God's going to put himself in all of us, and, and he's going to literally be in us all over the world. Think about that. All over the world at one time, God is working through his people. That, that's astounding. You see, the, you see the awesomeness of God that he would do this? I'm going to put my spirit in you, believer, but you're going to have to walk in it. I'm going to take away all the condemnation, but you're going to have to trust it. I'm going to take away all the fear. You're going to have to believe it. Because listen, even when Jesus walked with the disciples, what did, they struggled. It's going to be faith. I mean, do you see yourself as a literally, 1 Corinthians 6, believer, see yourself as a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a temple of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, when believers were fooling around with temple prostitutes, that's the rationale Paul makes for why it was appalling. Because you are a temple of God. He dwells in you. 
Why is sin so appalling? Because you're a temple of God. What Paul is saying is grasp that and live in light of that. You are the temple. That's astounding. And, and, but again, uh, uh, appropriating it, immediately, what does Jesus say in John 15? Abide in me. You're going to have to remain in me. You're going to have to walk faithfully. I am the vine, you're, and I find my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Again, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Is that not the same thing as walk according to the Spirit? Is that not the same thing as let the word of God richly dwell within you? Is that not the same thing of let the Holy Spirit overpower you and fill you? Is this not nothing new? Again, verse 11, these things have spoken to you so that you would have joy and that your joy would be made full. The fullest, most joyful life that you will ever experience is, is walking in the power of the Spirit and bearing fruit to the glory of God. And the challenge is this. You ever been in somebody's home where you didn't feel welcomed? You didn't, really, you didn't really feel easy in it? My, my struggle is this. That, 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 I, I want that to empower us. Again, you see there on your handout before I forget it. We participate and receive power to bear fruit and defeat sin through abiding. You know, there, there's, a, there's a participation here. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's not that we don't lack discipline. It's that we don't value godliness. There's people in this room that work out every day. They do this every day. They're the most productive people in all the world. And then when it comes to reading the Bible, well, when it comes to the things of God, well, no, listen, it ain't about discipline. It's not the lack of discipline. It's a lack of priority. Let's be honest. And, and we'll bring this home. I, I, this is probably why we don't set records for growth, but it's true. Listen, if somebody called me today and said, Chris, I've got a 12 o'clock tea time at Augusta National tomorrow. Are you in? What are the chances I say no? For those of you who don't know, Augusta National, I love golf. That is the premier golf course, at least to me, in all the world. There's a picture of it in my office. Uh, it's not idolatry, I don't think, or anything like that, but I'd love to play it. Listen, if someone called me tomorrow and said, we got a tea time tomorrow waiting for you at 12 o'clock, listen to me, I don't care what I had planned the rest of today and in the morning, it's canceled. It's canceled. I'm not going shooting with the security team today at 1. I'm not doing any, I'm going to Augusta. I don't even know if I'd ask Karen, forgive me. Like, that's, I think that was in our vows. If I ever get invited, I'm gone. I'm teasing. I'm totally, I shouldn't tease about that. That'd be sinful. But um, my point is this. I value it. Here's what I know about myself, and I'll put this on me. I do every day. I do what matters most to me. My, my son is on the golf team at Gaither. 
I do everything I can. And I'm grateful to, again, I'm grateful for a church. I hope if y'all, y'all didn't know this, y'all allow me to do this. But I'll work from home and I'll work at night. If I have to, I'll do whatever I can to show up at his tea time. Chase him around that golf course. Why? Because I love him. Does it mean I have to say no to some things that matter? It does, but he matters more. And and he understands that there would be times as a pastor where somebody will call me and I'm not able to do that. Listen, to the best of my ability, I'm going to be at every one of his matches. I'm going to chase him around that golf course. Why? Because I love him. He has my name. Do, do, we grasp, do we grasp what God has done here, guys? This is why we're spending a year more in Romans. Grasp the gospel. Listen, my, my following him is not dependent on him shooting a certain score. My following him is not based on him winning the tournament. My following him is based on the fact that he bears my name. Listen, there's a whole lot of wretchedness in me that can get caught up in what he scores and all this stuff, and that's sin in me. But at the bottom line, this, that's my son. It doesn't matter what he shoots. Now, there, listen, there's a part of me, hear me, I'm as competitive as they come. It matters in my, deep down in the places I don't want to talk about in my sinfulness, and I'm trying to crucify that. But ultimately, listen, that's my son. He doesn't need to perform for me. He doesn't need to pretend. He doesn't need to do any of that. He's my son. And I enjoy fellowshipping with him. And I enjoy experiencing that with him. That's what Paul is saying here. Listen, you're sons. Understand that. You're daughters. This isn't about performing. This isn't about pretending. This is about living in light of who you are. And living in light of who I've made you by my grace. And walking in light of that. It's, it's imperative that we grasp this gospel. Even next week as we, you know, Clay sang about it. But next week and, and we got delayed and I didn't quite get as far as I wanted. But that's fine. But we, we're going to talk about it next week. Your sons, you, you can call God your father. The challenge is this, do you live as if that relationship is real? Or do you still live like he's your slave master? And non-believer, if you're here today, listen, just like that, this is the beauty of the gospel, just like that, your sins can be separated as far as the east or the west if you'll confess them, and you'll look to Christ as being your sin offering. And then the challenge is this, go live in light of that. Come talk to me. We can help you study the Bible. We can help you grow up like 1 Peter 2 says. Listen, Christianity is a surrender. You see it there on your handout. And let me, let me read this quote for C.S. Lewis real quick. Some of that wasn't in my notes, and I start ad-libbing, and we go long. Give me one minute, please. I'm going to ask for grace. It's surrender to the glory of God. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. Listen, listen to this and we'll close. Well, I'll fill these two in real quick. Christ says, give me all of you. I don't want a certain amount of you. I don't want a certain amount of your talents. I don't want a certain amount of your money. I don't want a certain amount of your work. I want you. 
All of you. I've not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measure will do. I don't want to prune a branch here and there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me. The whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, all of your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in exchange, in exchange I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. Listen, you see it on your handout. We're not finished products, but we ought to be moving towards who we are in Christ. That's sanctification. We'll see it later. We are being conformed to the image of his son. And listen, no matter our struggles and no matter our failures, remind yourself every day that your story ends in victory. That's what Paul says in verse 11. You will be resurrected. You will, believer, receive a glorified body. Until then, pursue it. And pursue it by faith. And pursue it as a priority.